gentlemen, to another episode of Grizzly Bear Blues Live. I am your host, Joe Monax. So excited for you to be joining us, however you're taking in the show. Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeart, however you listen to podcasts. Uh, thank you for making GBB Live and the GBB Podcast Network overall part of your Grizzlies fan experience. Again, the starting five, four, or excuse me, core four, three and D, and of course the flagship show here, GBB Live. Parker Fleming, my co-host, joins me. And Parker, we're not going to make a huge deal out of it, but I, I wish I had like poppers and streamers, something like that. This is the seven-year anniversary of GBB Live. Wow, wow. Happy anniversary. Seven years. I'll tell you what. The first episode of GBB Live was done on January 7th, 2014. It was done in Memphis, Tennessee, before I left uh, the city there in the summer of 2014. And it was done in an apartment in Cordova, Tennessee. It was recorded on Blog Talk Radio, which was god-awful technology, and I'm super happy we don't use it anymore. And it was listened to by Parker, I think I've told you this before, so I won't ask you, uh, by 32 people. 32 folks! Shout out to you, the original 32 listeners of Grizzly Bear Blues Live. Um, and two of them were my mom and dad. So shout out to mom and dad for, for checking out GBB Live uh, all the way back in the day. We've come a ways since we got this show started. A humble beginnings started from the bottom. Now we're here, I guess, wherever we are. We're in your ears is where we are currently. So thanks to you, whoever you are, for listening to GBB Live. Ways to get in touch with the show. You can follow us on Twitter at GBB Live. You can follow my co-host, Parker Fleming, the associate editor or one of the associate editors of grizzlybearblues.com at Paca underscore Flocka. You can follow me, Joe Mullinax, the site manager of GBB at Joe Mullinax. And you can follow the blog that we are both fortunate enough to work for and with grizzlybearblues.com on Twitter at SBN Grizzlies. We are very excited today to talk with our guest. He did a wonderful article. I thought it was wonderful. Uh, ranking the various young cores of the NBA. He's a very talented writer over at The Ringer. Big fan of his. His name is Zach Cram. Zach, how are you doing, sir? Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I didn't know it was a special occasion. I didn't know either until I looked it up. I, well, that's not true. I knew we were around that general time uh, in, in terms of the seven-year anniversary. It just says, Zach, that I've been doing this too damn long, is what it says. Um, but, you know, as, as the undertaker of Grizzlies blogging, I'll continue to stick around until I've worn out my welcome, just as the dead man did in WWE. Uh, but anyway, um, you do terrific work over at The Ringer. Lots of good stuff involving uh, various styles of tech, or excuse me, of statistical analysis. And that leads us to our article that you wrote about, or wrote for The Ringer, I should say, uh, on young core rankings. So before we get started, I know Parker's going to elaborate with you on this as well. Uh, could you explain to our listeners again, the article, I can't recommend it enough, uh, theringer.com. It's Young Core Rankings. It came out in uh, a couple of days before Christmas. If you could just let our listeners know how you developed this. You literally ranked all 30 NBA teams in terms of their cores, which was defined by you as the best uh, or excuse me, players under the age of 25. Yeah, and I think the reason I am so interested in this idea is because so much of NBA fandom and analysis is about looking to the future 
what will these young players look like when they reach their peaks and how will that affect the team I root for? Right. Like, and with Memphis, I think that is true more than almost any other team right now where so many of the important players are under the age of 25 there. So I basically collected data from 538, which has a projection system and they do multi-year projections. So how good will every player be kind of in a range uh, over the next five years? And I summed up all of the players for each team and then ranked them. And of course, there are fuzzy areas near the edges. Like if a guy just turned 25, that doesn't mean he's no longer part of a young core. Like before last season, the Nuggets were the number one ranking. Then Nikola Jokic celebrated his 25th birthday and no longer appears on my ranking. But you know that doesn't mean the Nuggets no longer have Jokic as part of the young core, but you got to have the cutoff somewhere. And I think this is a pretty good barometer of where teams look, particularly teams that are trying to build for the future. Right. And so like with the, with uh, using the war from uh, each team, does it benefit more like the quality of the young talent or the quantity of young talent? Um, just when doing all this, what did you find to be like kind of the trend there in terms of quality versus quantity? I think one of the reasons I used the 538 wins above replacement metric is because I like how they both measure both sides of the ball. So players who are, are well-rounded will be valued more. And I think that kind of reflects what teams value. They pay a lot of money for good three and D wings. who can play on both sides of the ball. And then also I think it does a good job at properly valuing how star players are just so much more valuable than everyone else. So a team like the Mavericks, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is close to the top of this list, even though most of their team around Luca is veterans. But still, because they have Luca and he is a good enough young core uh, franchise cornerstone all by himself, they still appear near the top of the list. It's not like you have teams with like 10 mediocre players who are going to be ahead of him. Because if you're a team, you'd rather have Luca and nine scrubs than 10 kind of mediocre players. We're talking with Zach Cram of The Ringer, and uh, make sure you're following him on Twitter, at Zach Cram, K-R-A-M. Again, he wrote a great article ranking the young cores of the various NBA franchises over at TheRinger.com. Make sure you're giving it a read. So let's do a uh, maybe like a pseudo drum row. You, you mentioned the Dallas Mavericks, and we'll get back to them here in a moment. Uh, they're currently ranked sixth on your list, but the top five, the top five young cores in the NBA. Here we go. Number five is the New Orleans Pelicans, which I'll be honest was surprising, but we'll, we'll talk more about that here momentarily. Number four is the Atlanta Hawks. Number three is the Philadelphia 76ers. And again, you reiterate it's guys under 25. So Ben Simmons is on that list and he's a major reasons or he's a major reason, excuse me, uh, why he's on that list. Number two is your Memphis Grizzlies, ladies and gentlemen. And then number one, is the Boston Celtics. So uh, first off, the Boston Celtics, you mentioned when you think of young cores, you don't really think of the Boston Celtics, right? Like, because they're such a high-level contender. They are in the Eastern Conference Finals. When you think young core, you usually think a rebuilding team like the Memphis Grizzlies or the Atlanta Hawks. But because of that uh, Luka factor, we can call it, as you alluded to earlier, uh, the Boston Celtics are number one on this list. It makes total sense to me, and my top two would look exactly like your top two, Zach. I would have Boston one and Memphis two. 
but let's start with the Celtics. Uh, you have the, in terms of wins above replacement, Jason Tatum at a 53.4, Jalen Brown at a 27.4. We talk so much about how this is likely the next few years going to be the era of the two superstars, right? It was the three guys with LeBron and, and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh back in the day, and everybody wanted to get the big three. Now it looks like it's an era of pairings. And Memphis hopes they already have theirs in Jaron Jackson Jr. and John Morant. Boston sure as hell already has theirs in Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Yeah, and this ranking, of course, came uh, right at the start of the season. So even before Jalen Brown exploded like he has uh, to start this year. But I think the reason the Celtics are number one is because of Tatum and that superstar factor. Memphis has a lot more good young players, but I don't think even with how good Ja was as a rookie, he's not at Tatum's level necessarily. I didn't realize how remarkable Tatum's start to his career was until it's starting to research for this piece. He made an all NBA team at the age of 21. And besides Luca, who also did that and Tatum, only 13 previous players had ever made an all NBA team at that age. And every single one of them is either in the hall of fame or a lock to get there when they retire, guys who are still active like LeBron or Dwight Howard or Kevin Durant. So just from that data point alone, the Celtics have a future Hall of Famer who's currently leading their team at the age of 22. And I think there are all these jokes about, oh, Jason Tatum's still 19. And I think we've had years of those at this point, but he is still really young. And if he's already this good, this young, as the projection system shows, that leaves a lot of room for a lot of really good seasons ahead. Absolutely. I think Boston should be extremely excited about their future. They have all sorts of talent that fits alongside Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. And like you said, this was put out like uh, December 23rd, literally as the season began. So Jalen Brown taking an all-star step would make this an even more pronounced advantage for the Celtics uh, if this were to be redone even just a month or I guess two or three weeks. Uh, since the season began. Uh, the thing that fascinated me most about your write-up on the Grizzlies, and again, it's at the ringer.com, young core rankings, can't stress it enough. Um, they were ranked third anyway before this uh, improvement of this year. Uh, so they were third in the last time this core rankings was done. They're second now. You mentioned how Morant didn't have a perfect debut season, and I think that's important to point out. Uh, folks really get caught up in trying to make Morant more than he is. Morant is really, really good. He's a special, potentially generational talent. But at the same time, he has flaws. As you pointed out, he had too many turnovers. He was an average defender at best. Uh, in the modern NBA game, making less than one three-pointer a game is not ideal. But even considering all of those flaws, this is a guy who averaged 18 points and seven assists as a 20-year-old player. And to me, in an era where the three-point line is prioritized so much, the fact that he averaged 18 points a game while only making one three a game shows just how explosive he is. You compare him to a young Derrick Rose, uh, Trey Young, obviously, John Wall, Trey Young without the three, um, John Wall, Russell Westbrook, just reading from the article here. Uh, so Morant's on an all-star uh, projection line. But what really was impressive to me you have John Moran at 21.2. Jaron Jackson Jr. is 20.8. So according to my reading of this, that tells me that you see them, as, or at least the stat, sees them as almost equals. Uh, we've been talking about a 1A John Moran, 1B Jaron Jackson Jr. for a while now. 
assuming potential is realized, which obviously can be a, a mixed bag, do you agree with that assumption that John, Jaron Jackson Jr. can match up with John Morant and be close to that level of player? Do do the Grizzlies have two all-stars in Morant and Jackson on the roster or future all-stars on the roster? I think so. Uh, obviously, we haven't seen Jackson play at this season because of his health, but there are fewer, I think, national writers who love Jackson more than I do, in part because he's still really young. When he came out of college, he was one of the youngest players in this class, and that means he has a lot more room for improvement. And one of my favorite player types is what I call like the Brooke Lopez All-Stars, the players who can realistically stretch the floor as a five and not just, oh, I'll shoot 28% from three on a couple of tries a game, but really make defenses pay while also patrolling the paint on defense. And I think Jackson has the potential to be a star doing both of those things. You know, he was a 39% three-point shooter on a hefty volume last year. As a 20-year-old center, that kind of thing just doesn't really have precedent in NBA history. And part of that is because the league has changed and not many centers took that many threes as a young player in the past. But a lot of it is because of how skilled Jackson is. And he also is a good defender. And I think if there's a separating factor between he and Morant, I think they kind of complement each other well. And it sets the Grizzlies up long term because Morant's uh, two weaknesses that I mentioned, at least so far in his career, are shooting and defense. But Jackson can cover for, for him in both of those areas. So I think... You know, whether it was luck that the Grizzlies just fell into these players at the spots they did or a design to try and match these skill sets, I think it ends up looking really good for their future, assuming, of course, they both can be healthy and play together again. Right. And one other player you mentioned in your piece was uh, DeAnthony Melton. And I've seen a lot of DeAnthony Melton love on the ringer.com. Really appreciate that, by the way. And you could probably go back into the Grizzly Bear Blues podcast feed and find months and months and months of podcasts just revolving around DeAnthony Melton and his value as he was a restricted free agent last offseason. So you mentioned him to be like a big plus minus guy. I think last year his on and off uh, differential was like that of like in the same realm was like Giannis and LeBron and stuff. Is he just going to be one of those guys going forward that you see is that a second unit spark not necessarily like you know, like your Lou Wills or anything, but the guy that's just going to wreak havoc defensively and make smart plays as a secondary playmaker? Or do you think he can eventually evolve into a guy you can start next to John Morant to kind of take on, you know, the the Steph Curry's, Damian Lillard's, uh, the play the playmaking guards that are typically the uh, toughest defensive assignment? I think it's possible someone like Fred Van Vliet, who – was once a young player kind of in the Melton role, has since transformed into a, a really desirable free agent. So it's certainly possible. I do question the fit of Morant and Melton next to each other just because they're two pretty small guards, and I wonder how that would play up on defense. But one of the, I think, player archetypes that the 538 system likes and that I also like is the guard who just does everything well. He might not be a standout in any one specific area, but he's just good on the floor. He knows what to do, and his team is better when he plays. Someone like uh, Dante DiVincenzo, who is playing really well this year for the Bucks, almost went to the Kings in an offseason trade for Bogdanovich. Well, according to the 538 system, over the next five years, DiVincenzo is projected to actually be better. So the Bucks 
for as uh, foolish as they ended up looking when that deal collapsed, they might end up benefiting long-term from keeping him. And I think Melton is a similar player type. His three-point shot isn't quite where you would want it to be, but just the Grizzlies have always played better with him on the floor, and he's obviously missed most of the season thus far. But I think their bench unit was so good last year, and he was a big part of that because there isn't really an area where he makes the team worse. And especially when you get into the six, seven, eighth man roles, usually those guys have a strength and then a huge weakness. And when it comes to like the playoffs, eventually you want players who aren't played off the floor when opposing teams exploit that. Memphis has two players that are great examples of overvaluing the bubble, in my opinion. And they're both on different ends of the spectrum. On one end, you have DeAnthony Melton who struggled shooting the basketball in the bubble. And, and I think that led some folks to valuing him in restricted free agency to, you know, $4 million a year or something like that, like some amount that was never going to work. Uh, if you pay attention to the season before the bubble occurred, uh, Melton definitely was worth more than that. But then you have folks who look at a player like Melton and they overvalue him in that $15 million range like John Hollinger did at The Athletic. And I just felt that was a, a, the middle ground of what Melton got made sense to me uh, in terms of value. Uh, in free agency. Then on the flip side of that, you have Grayson Allen, who overachieved in the bubble, at least in my opinion. He looked like a sixth man, J.J. Redick, uh, Duncan Robinson-esque shooter from range that could also create off the dribble, and now he's come down to earth outside of the bubble uh, offensively. So it's just fascinating to me how the perception in that one very unique location in Orlando has kind of changed back. Melton had a very good game against the Lakers on, I believe it was Tuesday night. And then uh, Grayson Allen has obviously had a very slow start to his season. Uh, We're joined by Zach Cram of the ringer. Make sure you're following him on Twitter at Zach Cram. He wrote a great article about young cores over at the ringer. Give it a read Memphis ranked number two, according to Mr. Cram. I agree with that Parker. I'll get your take on that right now. As we go through The question of the day, the question of the day, how many NBA teams uh, have a young core under the age of 25 better than Memphis? That was put out at GBB live on Twitter. Thanks to everybody that participated in the poll. Uh, The options were three or more, two, one or zero, which would make Memphis the number one uh, core in the NBA, young core in the NBA. And I honestly thought, guys, that our fan base, first off, I tweeted this out late, so we didn't get as much of a reply as we normally do. Uh, I thought our fan base would be super biased and say nobody has a better core, period, end of story. And we'd have like 80% saying zero. That was not how it played out. Zero was the second leading vote getter, 29.4%, thanks to the over 50 folks that voted. Uh, So a smaller sample size than normal. The winner was two. So they felt the two teams had a better core than the Memphis Grizzlies. Zach, you and I said one. We would have been in the vast minority. We would have been in last place. Only 13.7% of voters said that only one team had a better core than the Memphis Grizzlies. But 23.5 and then 33.3. So quick math. I'm not a math teacher. 56.8% of Grizzlies fans think that two or more teams in the NBA have a better core than the Grizzlies. I feel like that's pretty, uh, that's pretty remarkable that there's a bunch of uh, Grizzlies fans out there that maybe are a bit more realistic. So 
uh, using that as a background, who do you think is comparable? Because again, using your rankings, Zach, you've got Memphis two, you've got Philly three, you've got Atlanta four, you've got New Orleans five. And some people probably raise their eyebrow at New Orleans being fifth. Uh, who are some folks that the next time this ranking comes out, maybe you could see them jumping the Grizzlies in terms of young core, not assuming things like the draft, obviously adding another number two overall pick would help somebody uh, like the Pelicans if, if it came to that. But what, which of these young cores as they currently exist could leapfrog the Grizzlies or could perhaps be seen as better than Memphis even now by somebody else looking at the same group of players? I think uh, the team you highlighted there is the one I turned to first, New Orleans. One of the reasons they're a little lower, and granted there's not much separating teams five through two here, is Zion Williamson, he did not play much last year, and he was pretty bad on defense. We saw, especially when he was forced to play without Derek Favors, that his crazy college numbers when he was blocking everybody and having a bunch of steals – just didn't translate to the NBA and maybe he wasn't quite in NBA shape yet. He missed most of the season, but especially in the bubble talk about guys whose reputations took a hit. Zion is going to be a future star as most number one picks are, but he did not look good on defense. So I think next year, by the time I do my off season rankings, again, we'll have a better idea if he's able to play a full season and knowing a defensive system, New Orleans has really changed under Stan Van Gundy where they're much Uh, more often packing the paint, kind of a Milwaukee Bucks-style defense. So I think if Zion can prove that, one, he's more healthy than he looked last season, and two, he's a better long-term defender, then the Pelicans will skyrocket up the list because they have a trio of Zion and most improved player Brandon Ingram and Lonzo Ball, who uh, could leave New Orleans this offseason, but if he stays, has a very good long-term projection too, just because like we were talking about with Melton and DiVincenzo, he does a lot of different things well. So that trio is really promising. And if Zion, uh, if his projection kind of reaches his superstar expectation, then I would expect New Orleans to rise next year. What do you think, Parker, looking at that question of the day? If we assume that Boston is one, I don't see how anybody could argue using these criteria that Boston isn't one. Uh, Assuming Boston is one, um, who do you have in else? Who else do you have in front of the Grizzlies? Do you have anybody else? What did you vote in the question of the day? I, I don't want any uh, Grizzly fans to come into my mentions, but I said three or more. Wow, um, three or more. Yep. So I, I have Dallas as one mainly because Luca's already a top five to seven player in the world, and I, I know Zach, you wrote about this on the Ringer dot com today about. Uh, his three-point inefficiency. That's kind of like been the big uh, storyline for him this season. But, I mean, he's still putting up like a 26-9-7 and while shooting under 20% from three. It's going to normalize. And I also love what they did in the draft with uh, Tyrell Terry, Josh Green, Tyler Bay. Uh, I also have Atlanta, but I'm going to put an asterisk next to that because I want to see if John Collins stays. Uh, long term and then I mean obviously with New Orleans I know Zion gets a lot of the shine but Brandon Ingram was an all-star last year and he's already taking another step Uh, I would I would have Memphis at like four alongside with like maybe um, 
I think it's like them and then Phoenix. I really like the uh, how some of the role players have stepped up for Phoenix, especially like Mikael Bridges and uh, Cam Johnson. But I also don't want to put them ahead of the Grizzlies yet because I want to see more of what DeAndre Ayton can do and if he can uh, live up to that number one pick status. Makes total sense to me. I think there's a lot, uh, a lot of young talent in the NBA right now. Lots of reasons to be excited, especially if you're a Memphis Grizzlies fan, because according to the great Zach Cram, uh, we are in line to enjoy a pretty special group of players uh, moving forward at or with the Memphis Grizzlies. Number two, as of now, on the young core rankings. When we come back, we're going to ask Zach about the Grizzlies start to the season, a slow beginning, this great young core that we've been talking about, uh, the two main stars of it being out due to injury. What does all of this mean? How is it going to fit moving forward? We'll ask Zach that next. You're listening to GBB Live. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We are here on Grizzly Bear Blues Live talking with Zach Cram of The Ringer, at Zach Cram on Twitter. It's me and Parker with you. And, Zach, I just want to get your early take on the Grizzlies, uh, how they've played, who stands out among the young core that we were talking about there in the first segment. Again, ironically, we've only seen John Morant for a couple of games. We've only seen DeAnthony Melton for a couple of games. We haven't seen Jaron Jackson Jr. at all. Uh, Parker, towards the end of the first segment, brought up Dallas having a strong young core. Even with their strong young core, they long for Desmond Bain. They were one pick away, they say, from taking Desmond Bain instead of Tyrell Terry. Bain has looked the part for the Grizzlies to this point. So from watching a Memphis team, who I believe they're 2-5 and five as we sit here right now, the record doesn't look good, but considering Morant has missed a majority of the season at this point, considering Jaron hasn't played at all, Justice Winslow hasn't played at all for the Grizzlies, uh, in terms of good and bad from this group of Grizzlies, what are you taking away from Memphis at this stage of the season? I think it's pretty hard to judge when you're missing those two best young players, the two cornerstones of the franchise's future. They've also played a really hard schedule. They were two and three and then played the Lakers twice in a row. And most teams, I think, are going to lose both of those games. They at least kept it close. From a, a broader perspective, I think especially without Morant's ability to drive into the lane, it shows how much they're missing shooting. That's probably why Desmond Bain stands out because he is one of the only guys on this roster who can consistently knock down an open three-pointer. But right now, Memphis is both not taking threes and they're not making them when they do. And I think that's a pretty big problem and why Jaron Jackson is so important to this team because at least from the top tier of the talent they have, he's the only real reliable three-point shooter. This year so far, they are 24th in the amount of threes they take and 26th in accuracy. And it's just really hard to score enough points in 2021 when you can't make three-pointers consistently. That brings me to, I think, another player who's a part of this young core, theoretically, who I really, really liked last season but have been very concerned by, and that's Brandon Clark who has seen his shooting percentages absolutely plummet. Last year, he shot 36% from three. This year, he's at 21. Last year, he shot 76% from the free throw line. This year, he's at 44. And normally, I'm a stats guy. I would say, oh, that's a small sample. But watching Brandon Clark shoot, and that form does not look like it did last year. And that's a concern. He was 
one of the most efficient rookie scorers in NBA history. And he seemed like, even if he's not going to be like a one C to Morant and Jackson's one A and one B, he could be a really reliable third piece going forward. And the start of the season has made me question that. So even if Morant and Jackson haven't played yet, that's the big long-term concern I have is a, does this team have enough shooting and B where does Brandon Clark fit into that now? One of the beautiful things about having Desmond Bain is obviously he does provide that shooting, but he's just one player. He's the 30th overall pick in the draft. He's not going to be somebody that's going to be a superstar more than likely in the NBA. So you definitely need more help on the perimeter as far as scoring, not just shooting, but scoring. Cause I do think we can overvalue the three point shot to an extent in the modern NBA, but you need it of course, to try to create space, especially for someone like Morant, whose game is so based off of that dribble kick penetration stuff that coach Jenkins also wants the team to prioritize. I'm not as worried about Brandon Clark because he was injured as well. Uh, he missed a couple of games. He missed a, or a couple of preseason games, excuse me. Uh, he missed a week or so. I think he's still working himself into condition. But the shooting stroke, uh, well, I'm not as worried about it as others in Grizzlies Twitter. Your concern is shared by, I would say, the majority of folks. Do you think Brandon Clark can snap out of it? I mean, again, it's been seven regular season games. But in this shortened season, that's about a tenth of the season that's already been uh, been played. Do you think that this is what we can expect of him? I'm thinking that he's missing the guys like John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. Brandon Clark's ideal role to me is that of like a Montrez Harrell type, super big off the bench where his elite talent at getting to the rim and finishing at the basket and shooting a corner three in particular can be maximized. I feel like we're expecting too much from someone who's already really good, probably is at his ceiling and or close to his ceiling and won't grow that much more from it. Uh, I think he can get back to what he was close to what he was for sure last year. Are you less optimistic about that right now, Zach? Like you say, it's early. I think the reason for concern is Clark has had bad shooting form before uh, in college, before he kind of fixed his shot. uh, Once he arrived at Gonzaga, when he was a, a younger college player at San Jose state, his shot looked terrible as well. So I think if he's backslid into those old habits then maybe there's a bigger concern than if this were like the first time he were exhibiting poor shooting form. I think he'll still be a useful NBA role player for everything else he can bring to the table. He's still scoring in double figures this year. He's a good rebounder, a pretty good defender for his size. But I think in terms of taking that next step up, if he can't fix his shot, he might be a bench player forever as opposed to somebody who can really play in end of game situations next to Next to Jackson, I was really excited about a Jackson Clark front court of the future and everything that could do on offense in terms of spacing the floor and giving Morant a runway to the rim. But if Clark doesn't scare defenses and stretch the floor that way, then maybe he doesn't fit as well next to him. So I think like the rest of the season is going to be a proving ground for Clark to prove that he can fix his shot again, like like he's done before. So maybe he can do it again, but early returns are not promising. Obviously, once his team's healthy, um, just a two-part question. What would you say their team, the team ceiling is for this season? Are they just going to be more of a playing contender, or do you think they could end up sneaking into that top eight, top six? And do you think uh, the good performance would basically just role players in that Lakers series earlier this week kind of raises that ceiling a little bit once the team gets healthy? I think the big 
question there is obviously when does Morant return? When does Jackson return? Will Justice Winslow ever play a game for the Grizzlies? He's another player who is under 25 and part of that theoretical young core, but they don't really know what they have with him. I would be surprised if they broke into the top six, certainly. I think they can contend for a playing spot, but the West is really tough. Every team besides Oklahoma City and I guess Minnesota, if Towns is hurt for a long time, has designs on the playing game as well. And I think Memphis was kind of on the bubble already before these guys got hurt. So I think at the moment, unless Morant and Jackson can come back soon, I would be fairly surprised if they made the play-in game this year, but that's okay. They, they're still very young, as we've been talking about, and they don't need to, to make the playoffs or bust this season. They can continue to grow and add new young players over the offseason. This isn't to say they can't make the play-in game, but I think there are so many other teams contending in the West that that they're kind of looking on the outside and they needed a really big season for Morant and he's going to miss a month. And that just really hurts, especially like you mentioned in the shortened schedule, that's an extra 10 games that he won't get to play. That makes total sense. And I think that's fair. They were absolutely a team that was on the brink heading into the season. Uh, but the fact that they are in a place now where they are without their two best players, you mentioned not seeing Justice Winslow, who I remain high on, even though it's a theoretical idea at this stage, which makes total sense. Uh, I'm curious to see how it all fits together. And I think we will see that here in the next month or so at the very latest. We'll get you out of here on this, Zach. Uh, Let's assume that the Grizzlies come back. This season is a wash. They get a lottery pick, top five to eight lottery pick. They get one of these wings that should help with the scoring and spacing. We have been talking about it, Grizzly Bear Blues, and others have said it too, that this is the last season without great expectations, that next year this team should be expected to make the playoffs with a job Morant in his third year in the league, with a Jaron Jackson Jr. entering a contract year, which feels crazy to say, but it's true. Uh, if he hasn't already signed an extension at that point, do you have expectations for this Grizzlies team going into next season already? Or do you think because this core is so young, that's premature? I think that's the right way to think about it, especially if they keep the plan structure after the season. Like if they have the plan structure still in 2021, 2022, if Memphis doesn't make the play in that season, I think there's reason for disappointment, especially because what happens to the young core, they start getting expensive and Jackson and Morant, like you mentioned, are not going to be on rookie contracts forever. So to kind of take advantage and, get playoff experience before those guys get expensive and you start maybe having to make decisions about which of the depth pieces you keep. I think the Grizzlies is one of the reasons they rated so high in my ranking is because they have a lot of players who stand out with the stats and who like NBA nerd Twitter gets excited about guys like John Conchar and Bain and Tillen. And I think the, the advantage of having Morant and Jackson so young is that you don't have to make decisions about which of those guys to keep and which to extend uh, and which to let go of. And they're going to have to start making those decisions in the next two to three seasons. So to get playoff experience and see which of those guys fits together in the lineup of the future and who can play well in a playoff rotation is I think pretty important. The, the Grizzlies played one like pseudo playoff game last year, right against Portland. So it's good that they have that experience, but if they miss out this year, you're going to need to start making moves uh, the following season. 
I agree completely. This is the last year without expectations. Grizzlies fans, enjoy it. That's Zach Cram of The Ringer. Make sure you're following him on Twitter, at Zach Cram, one of the great young NBA minds out there. Check out Young Core Rankings and all the work he does over at TheRinger.com. Thank you, Zach. Appreciate you. We'll have you back on down the road, hopefully. Thanks so much. Absolutely. For Parker, for Zach, I'm Joe. Continue to grind forth, Grizz Nation. This is Grizzly Bear Blues Live.